Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome, everyone, to this Federalist Society virtual event as this afternoon, March 9, 2022. We're hearing a litigation update on a case called INRE LTL Management. I'm Nick Marr, Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federalist Society. As always, please note that expressions of opinion on today's call are those of our expert. We have a great program planned uh, for you today and a great expert. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Professor Anthony Casey. He's Deputy Dean Donald M. Ephraim, Professor of Law and Economics and the Faculty Director of the Center of Law and Finance at the University of Chicago Law School. I'm very pleased to be joined by Professor Casey. Thanks very much for taking the time to be with us. Uh, Professor Casey is going to give a you know, 10, 15 minute overview of the case, give the updates, chart a little bit about where the case might be going, and then we'll have a little bit of moderated question uh, and answer portion of the call. We'll be looking to you, the audience, towards the end of the hour for your questions. So have those in mind for when we get to that portion of the call. With that, Professor Casey, thanks for being with us. The floor is yours. Thanks, thanks for having me. It's um, excited to talk about this pretty fascinating case. Um, so my update is on InRay LTL Management LLC, and it's a case in the bankruptcy court in New Jersey. Folks might be more familiar with it as the Johnson & Johnson Talc subsidiary bankruptcy. That's how you might hear about it in the press. And while there's a lot going on in the case, I'm gonna to focus today on a ruling last month denying a motion to dismiss. And this ruling kind of goes to the heart of the case, but it also goes to the heart of our bankruptcy law more generally. Um, but before I get to the ruling itself, we have to have a little background so we can understand you know, the, the importance of the case and the importance of the ruling. So big picture, simplifying a lot. We all know Johnson & Johnson is one of the largest companies in the world. As with most large companies, Johnson & Johnson is arranged into several subsidiary entities. Relevant for this update, one of the businesses within the Johnson & Johnson enterprise is its baby powder business. And since around 1979, that business has been located in a subsidiary entity. It's had lots of names and gone through different forms, but currently we're referring to it in the case, and the judge talks about it as old JJCI. So I'll talk about old JJCI, and that's where the uh, baby powder business was. Over the last decade, there's been a surge in litigation alleging that baby powder and related products containing talc cause ovarian cancer or mesothelioma. Nearly 40,000 of those cases have been filed against either old JCI, Johnson & Johnson, or both. The rate of filing also suggests that tens of thousands more cases are on their way. Meanwhile, the few cases that have gone to verdict have had varied outcomes, basically, from zero to four billion. So that's the you know, range of case outcomes when you get when uh, one of these suits is brought. So the company's facing thousands of cases with a huge range of expected outcomes. In response to this, Johnson & Johnson initiated a series of restructuring transactions to resolve the liabilities. And that plan is what ultimately gets us into the LTL bankruptcy. Again, I'm simplifying a lot here. But the basic move was that Johnson & Johnson 
split old JJCI into two new companies. And it did this pursuant to a Texas law that allows such a split, often referred to as a divisional or divisive merger. The result of that transaction was that old JJCI became two new entities, new JJCI and LTL, that's our debtor in this case. That divisional merger also allowed it to allocate assets and liabilities among those two companies. And that's part of the, the Texas law. Now, new JJCI came out of the transaction basically with most of the assets and LTL came out with the talc related liabilities. Two days later, and this is still part of the resolution plan, LTL filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy. Now that process of a divisional merger followed right away by a chapter 11 filing has become known as the Texas two-step because no, you know, this, this transaction is most commonly allowed in Texas. It's been utilized in a, in a handful of mass tort bankruptcies in recent years. Now here's the key part. If what I had laid out so far were the entirety of the transaction, there would be a huge problem, right? Separating assets from liabilities can leave creditors with no recourse. Were that to happen, the law would deem a transaction like this a fraudulent transfer and Texas law would likely invalidate the merger. As a result, the law requires to be valid, a transaction like this needs value to be provided to make sure the creditors are not worse off because of the transaction. In order to provide that value, Johnson & Johnson and new JJCI agreed to fund any talc-related liability of LTL, the debtor, up to the value of the assets of old JJCI at the time of the merger. So we create these two new entities, but there's this funding agreement that says the liabilities will be paid up to the value before the merger divided the two entities. So we're gonna pay up to the value of old JJCI all the liabilities that LTL ends up with. In that way, the asset value of JJCI was not separated from the liabilities because the funding agreement brought it with. That was the state of things when LTL filed for bankruptcy. Case was originally filed in a bankruptcy court in North Carolina, but that court transferred venue to the New Jersey bankruptcy court. And the New Jersey court is the one that ultimately ruled on the motion to dismiss which concerns us and which I want to talk about today. In the motion to dismiss, the committee representing the TAU claimants asked the bankruptcy court to dismiss the case, arguing that it was not filed in good faith. The debtors, you can expect, disagreed. So the question to the court was, was this case, this bankruptcy chapter 11 case, initiated in good faith? And that question turns really on why. Why did LTL file and why did why the Texas two-step? If the answers are consistent with the purpose of bankruptcy law, we don't we have a good faith filing. If not, we don't. As the court put it, and as other courts have put it, the law generally requires that a chapter 11 bankruptcy should be seeking to preserve going concern value or seeking to maximize the value available to satisfy creditors. The motion to dismiss basically argued that Johnson Johnson had structured this whole thing, not for that purpose, but rather as a litigation tactic to pay fewer damages on talc liability. In their view, no value in the bankruptcy proceeding, just a way to force a lower payment. The court denied this motion and pretty soundly rejected those arguments. And here's just a, a brief quote, uh, which is an example of the, the way the court viewed it. Let's be clear, the court said, 
the filing of a chapter 11 case with the expressed aim of addressing present and future liabilities associated with ongoing global personal injury claims to preserve corporate value is unquestionably a proper purpose under the bankruptcy code. So the view of the court was, first, Johnson & Johnson had opted to use bankruptcy because bankruptcy proceedings are more well-suited to the global resolution of mass tort cases than the alternative litigation options. Think class action, MDL, state litigation. And thus the bankruptcy court viewed it. This proceeding reduces the administrative cost and preserves value. Second, the court held the view that Johnson & Johnson had created a structure that actually increased the funds available to claimants because the funding agreement that happened with the um, divisional merger uh, guaranteed the availability of the full value of old JJCI and put the promise of a payment by J Johnson & Johnson behind that guarantee. Because of that, the court said, you've actually increased your available funds, not decrease it. The court also noted that as a result of the transaction, not a single asset had been cut off from the reach of creditors. Nothing about the structure had reduced the creditors and claimants ability to go after value. So in light of these two points, the court reasoned, the purpose of the structure was plainly not to reduce liability, but rather to facilitate a quick resolution of the current and future tout claims. Now to put, we had to put a little meat on that. What does it mean to resolve the claims in bankruptcy? And what does that look like? So just as in any litigation, you're gonna have a question of liability. For the bankruptcy proceeding, the first question will be total liability. Just like outside of bankruptcy, the parties will have representatives and those representatives will litigate or settle that question of what the total liability could be. If they don't come to a settlement, the bankruptcy court's gonna to have to set that amount. And here's a key point that the court, bankruptcy court focused on and that parties were arguing about, but the bankruptcy process has to set that value. Outside of bankruptcy, the courts have to set that value. To be clear, in any setting inside or outside of bankruptcy, at the end of the day, a value has to be set. The question is what process you use to set that value. Do you do it case by case as part of an MDL system or state litigation, waiting for future cases to arise before you can address them? Or do you do it in one proceeding in the bankruptcy court that covers all present and future claims? That's the question, which, which process is available? Once that amount is set, and again, by settlement or litigation, a bankruptcy plan would create a trust that contains the value and the claimants future and current go to that trust to, to get their distribution. So that's the, the kind of idea behind the bankruptcy resolution. That's the intended outcome. We determine the value by settlement or litigation. We get a plan, the plan creates a trust, claimants go to that trust. And we do it all in one proceeding. The benefits, of this system include certainty, especially the ability to resolve future claims, and that's not available outside of bankruptcy. The uniformity of treatment across those claims and the equity across claimants. So everyone is in the same proceeding. It's less of a you know, kind of lottery system of in the MDL or in the state law litigation. Now, absolutely, and the court recognized this and it has to be noted, this is a different process than litigating outside of bankruptcy. It's a process, but it's different. 
The court here took the view that different is not worse. And probably one of its stronger statements, it said, what the court regards as folly is this contention that the tort system offers fair, uh, the only fair and just pathway. So the court was saying, yeah, there's a tort system, there's MDL, there's state law litigation, and there's bankruptcy. And there's not just one system, and that system isn't the only fair one. So it's appropriate for a debtor to file bankruptcy in order to opt into this system. That was the court's view, and that answers the, the why bankruptcy. So, so there's your bankruptcy purpose in the court's view. There's still one looming question, though. Why the two-step? Why the creation of LTL before the bankruptcy? According to the claimants in the motion to dismiss, if Johnson & Johnson wanted to use bankruptcy, the parent company, Johnson & Johnson, should have filed itself. The court viewed this as a red herring. He really was not having none of it. In the court's view, the purpose of this case was to resolve tens of thousands of calculated claims, right? That's where the distress falls. That's what we're trying to resolve. Those claimants who, of the tout, those tout claimants, present and future, are the ones who will be affected by, and their representatives will have to vote on the bankruptcy plan. So the important thing is that their claims are in the proceeding and they are represented, not everyone else. Right? The court asks, why do we want to pull every single other contract that Johnson & Johnson has, every single other counterparty, every employee, every single stakeholder of the entire Johnson & Johnson enterprise into this proceeding to get a resolution that involves those claimants? Right? All that will do is increase the cost and the procedural maneuvering among the parties. Right? If you file all of Johnson & Johnson, that's what you get everything comes into the proceeding. And the court asked, why would we do that? To add a little perspective on that, a bankruptcy filing of Johnson & Johnson, the entire enterprise, would an asset value be second only to the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy? It'd be the second largest bankruptcy in history. The cost of that proceeding would be enormous and it would increase exponentially as, as from what we're talking about here, because you're adding so many extra parties and extra interests and extra contra uh, contracts. So the bankruptcy court's ruling pretty, pretty bluntly asks, what's the point of that? Now, some of my colleagues in the academy think the cost is the point. So in their view, the debtor only gets the benefit of bankruptcy if the debtor feels the pain of bankruptcy. Now, to me, and I think to the court here, this gets it completely wrong. The bankruptcy system, Chapter 11, is about preserving value. It's not about destroying value. The law does not require the debtor to destroy value, shut down operations, or lay off workers in a sort of kind of ritual to prove its good faith. That's not the Chapter 11 rules. It, it hasn't been in the code since 78. It's not there now. It's not what Chapter 11 is intended to do. So the court says you don't have to punish yourself and destroy value in order to take advantage of the system to preserve value. And that's the way it viewed this, um, this filing. Finally, it, it is worth addressing one thing, and that's the question of abuse. So claimants in their motion are not wrong to say the Texas two-step and a chapter 11, chapter 11 in general, actually, are subject to abuse. There's two big risks of abuse going on. First, as I noted earlier, asset value could be diverted from creditors. 
The court here found that the funding agreement eliminated that risk. But that's not always necessarily true. Right? There needs to be robust protections to make sure assets aren't diverted from creditors' reach. Most obviously, we have state law measures that can be pursued if a divisional merger or anything like it, a spinoff, an asset sale, anything like that. If it's used to divert value, we have state law measures and bankruptcy measures to uh, undo that or to remedy that. The second risk is what if the debtor tries to push through a plan that provides too little value for the claimants, right? And that's a possible risk in any bankruptcy. There's a risk that the debtor bets on its ability to kind of slip one over on the system. In response to this risk, the bankruptcy system has two protections. The first is judicial, judicial oversight. The judge in the case has to approve the plan, has to resolve value disputes, right? And the judge will be looking for attempts to abuse the system that way. But the more important protection is that the plan has to be negotiated with and voted on by the claimants. It's important to note that the mass tort bankruptcies you hear about in the news, the Purdue case and other ones, the plans in those cases have been approved with well over 90% of the claimants voting in favor, right? Here, and in those cases, the debtor, and here the debtor and Johnson & Johnson, have a strong incentive to get to that same place, an incentive to negotiate with those claims to fund a plan that gets that level of support, that you know, over 75, over 90% support that they get in favor of the plan. The way the court put it in ruling on the motion to dismiss was the only way that Johnson & Johnson and, and JJ, new JJCI resolve their liability in this bankruptcy is a plan in which, and this is the quote, in which Johnson & Johnson's and JJCI's role and funding contributions warrant a release as both a matter of fact and law. They have to get to that outcome, that get to that support level where they're gaining the support both of the claimants and of the court. So the big picture, this is kind of my big picture take on, on the dismissal is, there are always opportunities for abuse in any proceeding and in any bankruptcy proceeding. But it doesn't make sense to shut down the system completely to avoid that abuse when we have other protections available. And I think the court got it right in avoiding that remedy and saying, no, like there are other measures to protect against abuse. Now, before I open up to questions, uh, just a quick kind of what's next. This is updating on a case like this. It's important to think about where bankruptcy law is and what this means. It's a really strange time in bankruptcy law because at the same time, filings are down right now. There are fewer large bankruptcies, but the attention is way up. So high profile bankruptcies, Purdue, Boy Scouts, Johnson & Johnson, all these cases are really high profile and getting noticed in a way that, that other bankruptcy cases didn't, while bankruptcy filings are in general down. And as we watch these cases, there, there are going to be, in this, especially here, additional rulings of large importance. It's worth watching those because these this small group of high profile cases will lead to precedent that is certain to have major impact on future mass tort cases, but perhaps on all chapter 11 cases, depending on how broadly the rulings are and how broad the issues they're ruling on 
uh, become. So it, we, we should watch these to say, all right, like what does the second circuit say in Purdue Pharma? If this case, uh, LTL in the third circuit, what, what, is, what ends up happening there? Those are gonna be important things to watch in thinking about both mass tort and bankruptcy generally. Thanks. Thanks very much, Professor. That was a great overview. Um, for the audience questions, we'll go to those in a bit. If you have some right now, you can submit them via the chat function. Uh, they'll pop up here and, and I'll ask them at the appropriate time. I have a couple questions uh, first to begin, Professor. The first one that comes to mind is you mentioned the dynamics of um, basically, if I got this right, fewer filings, but more attention. Um, on these cases, what, what makes bankruptcy and specifically what, what makes this particular case so controversial? Um, I would think that many, many companies have gone through bankruptcy or go through it. Um, so could you speak a little bit to that dynamic? Yeah. So, I mean, there, it's interesting to, to kind of look big picture of why all the attention. I don't think it's just this case. I think um, you know, there was a lot of media attention around the Purdue bankruptcy. There was a lot of media attention around the, the Boy Scouts bankruptcy. Um, and there's a few others where we're kind of, for other reasons, non-bankruptcy reasons, they were in, in the press as well. Uh, then the similar issues are playing out, you know, kind of mass tort type issues in this case as those. So that brings some attention. And then Johnson Johnson, as I said, beginning is in the top, you know, 15, 20 largest companies in the world. So we're talking about a bankruptcy that's resolving a high profile litigation issue with a very large and high profile company that everyone knows the name of, right? It's, it's as, as household a name as you'll get. So that's the start of just why there's attention. Then the, the reason why some of these cases have uh, been controversial attention is they, they, the Texas two-step is not, you know, like I said, there's been a handful of cases. So it's not exactly the way cases have been done, you know, decades ago, right? It's not the same exact structure. It's, it's a slightly different structure to get to an outcome in a mass tort setting. And, and mass tort settings are complicated and there are different structures utilized. But mass tort cases are complicated because a lot of people have a lot at stake. And that raises the level of controversy just right there. Like, okay, there's a lot at stake here. There are billions and billions of dollars at stake. Uh, and so people have an incentive to bring that forward and bring that kind of get that uh, attention going. So I think all of those factors get you to a point where people are watching this. And, and as I said at the very end, the effects of Purdue and Boy Scouts and Johnson and Johnson in these cases uh, on mass tort can be very important, right? If these structures are successful, that's an important thing. If, if courts rule, if this had been dismissed, it would have been a, a huge deal. And in part, people would have had to really think about the way they're structuring uh, settlements. Uh, that makes sense. Um, kind of a more fundamentals theoretical question for you to kind of provide some context to that is, um, can you talk a little bit about the pros and cons of the mass tort system and, you know, are the pros good and good enough to keep people in that system? Kind of, if you, if you can follow the question and what about, are, is there something about the cons of it that make bankruptcy appealing an appealing path? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the, the way the court viewed, I think the court took a, the bankruptcy court took a 
fairly negative view of the alternative MDL or class action system, not in general, but as a tool to resolve these types of mass torts, in particular ones with future claimants, right? So if you have a case with future claimants, uh, you're not going to be able to resolve those claims in the MDL situation, in a class action situation, in a state law litigation. There's really not a mechanism for resolving that. And it creates a problem because the current victims are chasing the same resources as the future victims. And this has been a problem in asbestos for, for years. And the, this is why we've seen bankruptcy as the remedy or as the um, structural solution in many asbestos cases. So the, the, the first and fundamental issue is that future claimant problem. Then there are questions about you know, just centralizing and resolving in how many proceedings. You know, if you have a, a, a multi-district litigation, you're going to centralize some things, but not all things. And you're going to settle some cases individually and not be able to kind of do the global settlement that is sought here. And that's that global settlement can be really valuable, again, because we're talking about the same source of funds that the current and future victims are, are um, pursuing. That's not to say, in my, this is my view, it's not to say that the litigation system is completely, civil litigation outside of bankruptcy is completely broken. You know, but I do agree with the court that it is fair to say that's not the only process out there. And bankruptcy can be a very valuable and useful process. And my view, kind of what I've written about my scholarship is that bankruptcy exists to form a kind of system and framework for negotiating multilateral disputes. When negotiating is problematic and there's so many parties and there'll be holdouts. And that's exactly this problem. And so if bankruptcy can't solve, be a, be a tool for solving this problem, it, it's not it does it's not doing what it's supposed to do, right? There are other multilateral bargaining areas where bankruptcy serves as a framework, but it's the same problem and the same idea here. So, you know, I think the court focused in, in some detail on the negatives of the other system, and there are those, but then kind of my work's been focused on the positives of this system. It really is designed for this type of negotiation. And that's why it's a valuable alternative in these mass tort cases, again, especially with future claims. That's great. And we have a lot of great questions coming in. So I'm going to get to those very quickly. Just real quick on the tail end of that, I wonder, kind of flip the question around. Um, so you, you mentioned bankruptcy is a, can be a good system for resolving these kinds of, these kinds of uh, conflicts. Are there, what are some notable drawbacks, if you will? What are some cons to the bankruptcy system? So one thing people have noted um, is, and this is what I kind of meant when I said it's a different process. And so the the in an in the non-bankruptcy litigation, there is there is this idea that you're gonna get you know this day in court. Now it doesn't go away with bankruptcy. Like you'll you'll be able to litigate with the you know, you'll be have a representative in the bankruptcy proceeding, and then the fund is set up and you make your claim against the fund, and there are opportunities there, but it's not the same. And so when you say to someone, especially someone who's not a lawyer, you say, you're not getting that day in this court. The debtor decided to put it in this court. Like you can, I fully get why someone's like, wait, the debtor told me what court I have to go to. Like that is a, 
a cost to solving it this way. Now, what I said earlier about the nine, the ninety percent. So think Purdue. You have one hundred ten thousand ish claims, and you have one hundred eight thousand or something. You have ninety some percent of those claims want to settle now, and they they think this is a settlement that's going to get money to them right away, and then a small percentage don't. And to be clear, that's all victims, right? That that's all tort victims that we're talking about. It's it's a dispute within the group, and so one cost is this group wants to have that day in that court, and the other group wants relief and and remedy now. And so there is a trade-off there. And so you have to say, all right, we're choosing one process uh, rather than another. Um, the the other, you know, it's it'll be a more centralized one representative or one smaller groups of representatives. There'll be less variance is the good thing of bankruptcy. And I think, you know, the flip side is some some tort plaintiffs benefit from variance and some get disadvantaged by it. And so if you were one who thought you would benefit from the variance, then making it more certain and less variance, the total amount, I'm not talking about changing the total amount, but the distribution can change. And depending on who you are, you, you have a different view of whether that's good or bad. So we're continuing to get some great questions. I'll just do one more and then we'll go right to, to audience questions. And thank you to the audience um, for these great questions. I'm reading them, they're, they're very good. Uh, I'm wondering about, you mentioned, you were kind of explaining that the LTL structure and the, the old, you know, all those different names. Um, what do you say about the, the kind of the criticism that I've heard of divisional mergers is uh, basically, and I think you mentioned this, mentioned this or alluded to this, basically they're a way to reduce payouts uh, or they could be a, a way to reduce payouts. What do you have to say in response to that, if anything? And maybe one thing to address is like, are there already things in place that prevent this kind of uh, basically fraudulent behavior? So to be clear, the reduction in payouts would come from, as I said, it being separating assets from liabilities. This divisional merger and in the recent asbestos cases, they all had these funding agreements with them. The funding agreement here says the talc liability will be funded up to the value of JJCI's assets at the time of the merger. And if those assets go up, the value of the funding goes up with it. It's hard to see how that reduces the available payout, right? It, it's like we sold the assets for their true value, which always is, or that's always fine to sell assets for their true value. And then we have that funding from the cash available. So it, it's odd that you would think that that would lower payouts. Now, what I, what I think the argument is, is the bankruptcy court is going to set that number low. And you know, that number, why would Johnson & Johnson go do this if they didn't expect the bankruptcy to set that number lower? As I said, a debtor might bet on lowballing and pulling one over on the system. That's possible. I have no reason to think, and I, I, I think the bankruptcy judge, for good reason, didn't think that bankruptcy judges are more prone to underestimate claims than other judges. Like, why is it just inherently that bankruptcy will get that number wrong? That's the the pushback on the oh, this is used to reduce liability. The bankruptcy court is going to have to set a number and people keep saying, oh, they're going to cap a number. Well, 
if you call that a cap, then at the end of the day, when all the other cases are litigated, they will be capped at what are those, whatever those add up to. The question is, what's the total of those claims? And which system do we think gets that right? I actually don't know that either system has a uh, dominance on getting it right. The, then the question is, if we don't know which gets it right, and they're both expected, which gets it done most efficiently and most cheaply and without wasting resources that either can go to the stake, the, the, the tort claimants or to the valuable enterprise, right? We don't want to waste money for the sake of wasting money. And so it's not clear to me why you say, oh, it'll reduce value. As you said at the end of your question, if there are other measures, if a divisional merger didn't include a funding agreement, it, it would be invalidated either under the Texas statute or under fraudulent transfer law. If, if you got to the point uh, in the bankruptcy where the, the um, J&J or uh, old new JJCI refused to honor the agreement, the bankruptcy court will take action. And so there are measures to stop that underpayment. I think the counter worry is, oh, but the bankruptcy judge is just inherently going to undervalue. And that's the part I take some issue with. I don't see why that's true. Very interesting. Well, um, I'll come back maybe at the end, but we've got to get to audience questions. These are great. We have quite a few on uh, the two-step act in Texas. I'll try to combine them uh, in, in, in you know, a couple of points. The first one is, um, can you kind of re- explain what is this? Uh, yeah, just it's, in a it, nutshell. it's a law that's been available in Texas since I think like 1989 ish. Um, there is some, there, there's a version that you can do in Delaware and apparently statutes in Arizona, Pennsylvania, where it might be allowed. It, it, it's just a part of a statute that says you can have a merger that results in two entities and allocate assets and liabilities between them. But that's basically what it says. And it's weird to call that a merger because it's actually a division. So that's why people refer to it as a divisional merger or a divisive merger. It's, it just says you can have an entity that then turns into two and allocates liabilities and assets between it. There's nothing magic about that. You could do a spinoff without doing that, that ended up with assets and liabilities allocated. You could do an asset sale that ended up with assets and liabilities allocated. You could just have an asset transfer. Now, in all of those transactions, you've got to worry if you are transferring assets without value coming in for them to, to be available for those liabilities, because that's a fraudulent transfer. So in some sense, the Texas two-step well, the, two, the second step is the bankruptcy file. The Texas divisional merger is just one quick way to get to, we're going to separate the assets and liabilities and then you know, figure out the value to make sure it's not a fraudulent transfer, which is the funding agreement. That makes sense. Um, relatedly, we have a question about um, uh, specifically, can you go into again, maybe how, how did the court resolve um, the two-step issue uh, in this case, and then um, bringing fraudulent conveyance into it. Can you explain how that plays in? So the court here said, first, this is allowed under state law. It happened under state law. So there's nothing starting point inherently wrong with divisional merger. And you know, I think that has to be right. Bankruptcy will look to the law of the state about kind of what transactions 
uh, again, putting aside fraud transfer, but just how you structure an entity, right? And and so that's first step. Like that's okay. It, it, it was done consistent with the Texas statute. The Texas statute independently would require to make sure the creditors aren't worse off because of the allocation, which is a se like separate protection against fraudulent transfer from fraudulent transfer law. Um, so the court said, all right, it, it does that. The funding agreement provides that value. And as I noted, like actually provides in the court's view more value, which makes it consistent with the Texas statute also consistent with any fraudulent transfer law, the way, uh, the, the, the way that's the way the court looked at it. Like there's no fraudulent transfer here because you weren't doing it to move assets away and you didn't move assets away or at least asset value away given the, excuse me, funding agreement. So at that point, the court says that the Texas two-step is not what this is about. This is about this filing to resolve this question is there a bankruptcy purpose to do that? There is. That's the opting into this system to resolve the mass torts. Uh, the fact that this other transaction happened before you did it was just part of a system, a structure to opt into this system. And it's fine as long as you provided that value. If it didn't provide that value, again, you would have maybe a different outcome in this motion to dismiss. You would have perhaps fraudulent transfer arguments in the bankruptcy court, you would have fraudulent transfer cases outside of court or even before the filing, and you'd have a, a challenge under the tax, Texas statute. Makes sense. Well, we've also got questions about the uh, kind of background history of these kinds of divisional merger laws and then the future of them. So first, uh, the question is about, um, basically, it seems like these divisional merger laws are relatively new, what do you know what inspired them? What, what made them come about? Um, okay. Yeah. So I, as I understand, I, I, uh, the, the Texas statute like has been around since the eighties and it was not, this wasn't kind of in the vision of what was going on. It wasn't like, Oh, we're going to create a structure for, um, bankruptcy resolution of mass torts, right? That doesn't mean it's not valuable for that. It's just, I don't believe that was where, where it was created. I think it was just part of the way the Texas statute defines mergers um, and allows, you know, companies to structure their entities. Then, as I said, there's been a handful of these cases, starting with asbestos cases, where they use this as a structure to then isolate the liabilities that would then go into bankruptcy to be resolved. And the value of that is, this was when I talked about bringing, do we wanna bring in the entire enterprise when all we're trying to resolve is the thousands of tort claimants. And you know, when you couple that with the funding agreement, the courts have said, and this is uh, in North Carolina where most of these have been filed, the courts have said that is a valid structure and a valid reason to file. And so, then, you know, part, you know, as that, as courts say it, it works, people use it, right? And, and there's this like, sometimes nefarious story, look, that court said it was okay. And then people jumped on the bandwagon and the, the court here in New Jersey is like, yeah, that's the point because the bandwagon is saving value for everyone involved, right? Now, if you disagree with that, then there's a, a problem with this, but the bankruptcy court in New Jersey was pretty clear in its view that, this structure allows a process that is a easier, quicker, and beneficial to everyone way to resolve mass tort. 
and it doesn't take value away from the, the claimants. Therefore, it's, it's consistent with bankruptcy law. And the fact that the two-step just made it more clean and simple is fine because bankruptcy is not a punishment. It's a, a process to preserve value. So I, beyond that, I don't think there is much history, or at least not that I'm kind of aware of in the text. But I think it just was on the books and then was used for this. No, great. So then we have a question about uh, kind of the future of these laws. Do you think that um, what's in the works in terms of what Congress is thinking about doing? And would a specifically the this person's next question is, would the that kind of federal law be positioned to override something like Texas's law? Or you mentioned a couple other states, I think Delaware, Pennsylvania. Uh, so there, there's been legislation bounced around in Congress and some hearings on this, both about the releases in Purdue and the divisional mergers. Um, the, the one that was kind of drafted was really broad. And it was a, basically said that if a transaction, and they, they had to kind of write it this way because they wanted to not allow loopholes on it. If a transaction results in the separation, something along the lines of in the separation of liability and assets, the entity that result an entity that results can't file for bankruptcy. Now, as you can imagine, given one thing I've said, I'm not a big fan of a law to make this structure kind of to outlaw the structure to begin with. But even like assuming we said, all right, we want to get rid of the Texas two-step that legislation would do so much more because there are lots of transactions that result in assets transferring from entity to entity. And what happens if you say those entities can never file for bankruptcy? The case gets dismissed. Well, that's a cost to these transactions that might be totally unrelated to any of this. But even for these transactions, then, all right, the, the claimants are gonna have to pursue a claim in a state court and Texas will still have this law that says this is a valid transaction. So it's not clear who that benefits or how that plays out, right? It, it's just, it's, it will be a different process and bankruptcy will be off limits. Um, but what happens if there's like down the road, there really, there's not a cent, you know, there's like very little left and there's a kind of race against the assets and you can't file because the statute covered it. So I imagine, I think the drafters are aware of this issue, that if legislation does come out, it will be very different than what's been put out right now, because it, it it's so blunt and broad that I think it would be problematic beyond whether or not you think two steps are valuable transactions or not. Good. Um, well, because this is a Federalist Society audience, we have two questions actually about the Seventh Amendment. Uh, so what, uh, basically the questions are, um, uh, doesn't this process, I, I assume this is the bankruptcy process, but I'm not sure maybe the questioner can, can clarify. Doesn't this process essentially kill the Seventh Amendment right to trial by jury for torts? Also, another question, are there concerns with the Seventh Amendment and the right to jury trial in these mass tort cases? How is this issue addressed? Yeah, so these, for, yeah, <laughs> these claims were brought up in the motion to dismiss and the court talks about it. One point the court makes and worth noting is the now we're talking about whether or not setting up this settlement fund, this fund that's going to be where we go for our uh, claims is constitutional. Um, the court points out 
there's a provision in 524G that specifically for asbestos cases envisions this exact outcome. So point one, Congress, at least when passing that, thought this was consistent with the Seventh Amendment. Those cases have proceeded without being ruled unconstitutional under the Seventh Amendment. So while there is a claim made, if if true, if it violated Seventh Amendment, we would be saying 524 is unconstitutional. Uh, the way courts have point what courts have pointed out is you can structure the fund in a way that preserves the right to your jury trial, right? You're just saying, here's the available funding. And now you can agree to your claim, or you can litigate with the fund over what your claim is, or, you know, get in, get into the litigation there. Is that, I'm not, you know, again, I'm, I, I think about this question, but I'm not a, a, a con law scholar by kind of my, it's not my day job, but I will say the cases are no, no, no court has said yet that violates the Seventh Amendment. And it it would it would be a radical moment to say, all right, all we've done in asbestos has been unconstitutional. The statute that was passed is unconstitutional. Settlement funds and all these bankruptcy are, are subject to that challenge. And ultimately, that's where the, the court in this case and in most cases have come out. Great. Um, well, we have some more questions related to the specifics of this case, so let's kind of return there. Um, uh, let's see. One is, I just scroll past. Oh, um, how will the bankruptcy matter interfere with the uh, the MDL that is uh, the questioner says said to be scheduled uh, for trial within a couple months from now? Is it going to postpone it? What should the claimants in the MDL expect this year? Yeah, so it, it, there'll be there there are uh, injunctions to postpone the the litigation. So they're going to try to channel all the litigation into the bankruptcy, and so the the short term will be to stay that. And then if there's a settlement and a fund and a plan in the end, the plan would have channeling injunctions, which would say your claims go from you know the claims you would bring elsewhere go to the fund we're setting up. Uh, so that's that's kind of the vision of it all is to to bring this to one focal point where we're resolving it here. We're setting up that fund. The fund exists going forward. Current claimants come there. Future claimants, when their claims arise, come there. And you know, I could imagine we're talking about 50 years of future claimants, right? So you're, you're, if this fund is there and all the litigation, the resolution, not you know, the, the filing doesn't permanently do this. This is the, the goal. If it gets confirmed and the court pointed out, you'll have to have support and get to that point. If it were confirmed would be to channel everything into that process. And in the interim, we stop, we, we put a stay on it. That makes sense. Um, we've got another question about, oh, and this one's actually related to a question I had, so I'll you know tack it on to the end. Could the settlement value um, with claimants be so large that Johnson and Johnson itself will have to declare bankruptcy? Related, my question is, uh, I, I, we might have kind of touched on this briefly, but but why create the separate entity LTL? Um, why not just go with the the whole company itself uh, in the beginning? Yeah. So so the 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 why create I I. I I think gets to that point, gets to that point I was talking about, about 
trying not to bring everything in. And then it goes to your question. If the liabilities are less than the asset value of old JJCI, and we don't know what they are, but if they were less than that value, and the court talks about that being $60 billion. Um, and if that if that's the right value, and if the claims come in under that, then we can solve, we can resolve this much more cleanly. Now, if the claims turn out to be a lot worse, it, it does change things. But here's the, you know, the, the arguments in the bankruptcy from the claimants class went in both directions. And the court talks about this. And one end, they're like, oh, you're limiting, you're limiting our liability because the, the assets might not be enough. And then they shouldn't be allowed to file because there's no insolvency. Well, if the assets greatly exceed 60, or I'm sorry, if the claims greatly exceed $60 billion, then you're getting to, uh, first the question is, are they claims just against JJCI or are they claims valid against Johnson & Johnson? The filing in the two-step didn't change anything on that. Right now, the resolution in the settlement goal would be to resolve all of this. But if the claim was high enough and a plan couldn't get through, you'd have claims against, you'd, you'd try to bring those claims against Johnson & Johnson. Again, I don't, without digging into the claims, I don't know whether those would succeed. It probably would have this variance. We're talking about 40,000 claims, again, ranging from zero to 4 billion. So it's possible that, you know, a world in which this bankruptcy isn't filed, you could start running up against, wow, we're, we're, taking all the value from one of the largest companies in the world. I think J&J is probably four, $400 to $500 billion value. Um, I don't think they think, and I don't think people said that these claims are $400 billion, but there is billion, billions of dollars of potential liability in each claim and in the cost of litigating these. So if you, ex if you just went through all the assets, of the funding agreement, then you'd have a different case. And, and if there's no plan, those claims would, would be out there still and you'd have to figure out what to do with them. If, if Johnson & Johnson wants to settle those, they're like this is when the judge talks about what contribution gets to an outcome where they can get, they can get a release from liability or an injunction. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let's see audience questions and uh, just for the audience, we have about nine minutes left. So uh, if you have additional questions, uh, please send them now. Um, let's see. So we did the Texas two-step. Um, uh, well, kind of related to the liabilities, you know, and funds that we just talked about. There's a question about, um, is there any estimation right now as to what the ultimate liabilities will be? And also, are there are there uh, limitations to the funding agreement, or is this up to the kind of up to the court? What, what's the what's the process there? So the first question, I I don't I don't know of a, of a, a fit, there's no official estimation. I imagine plaintiffs' lawyers have their estimate. I imagine debtors' lawyers probably have a sense of where they estimated. I would guess that it's, there's a lot of very, like it's a, it's a wide range of possibility. Um, and you want to see how, you know, how the strength of the cases plays out and whether it's right, the 10,000 cases are coming. So um, I don't think there's an official number now. There will have to ultimately be an official estimation of the total liability. 
again, either by settlement or litigation. I would imagine today, if you ask the parties and they said what it was, they would be at different points. And that's when I said, like, some court has to set liability and we got to decide which process will do that um, by settlement or litigation. So uh, that's that. When, <clears throat> there was an important second question, which was, Oh, um, what about, is there a person asked about a funding limit? Would, is there oh, a funding yeah. Limit? So the agreement, the agreement limit says that Johnson and Johnson and new JJCI, which is the entity where the assets went, will fund up to the, the talc liability up to, uh, the amount, the value of the old JJCI assets. Now there's a little bit, it's a complicated agreement because there's a separate subsidiary revenue stream that's going to come in first that the debtor owns and that'll pay first. But once that's expended, then the funding agreement is, is really capped by the value of the assets pre-merger. Now the assets pre-merger, but the value can go up. So the idea is if the asset value goes up over time, then the valuation when we get to that point would look to that. So it's in that sense, the funding agreement is capped at the value of the debtor, the, the, the pre-merger entity, which if we didn't have the Texas two-step, which is where you would have started with. Separately to your point about Johnson and Johnson, right? They're not, there's no release of them in the funding agreement. And the court talks about this when it says, the way that they'll they'll resolve this is getting to an outcome that resolve that either gets support or, or convinces the court. There might be additional funding that comes through that, right? There's gonna be a negotiation. The parties are gonna see what the liabilities look like and see what the landscape is, and they're gonna negotiate. And, you'll have to get to that 75, 90%. Um, so in that sense, it, there's no limit, but the agreement itself is to get the and the parties where they would have been pre-division. And, and it's not, it's, that's the limit because that's the, the way if JJCI had filed, that would have been the limit again as well. Makes sense. Um, let's see, we have uh, just a few more minutes left, so we'll get a couple more questions in. Uh, someone asked, what does the federal rule of evidence 702 have to do with Texas two-step and or J&J litigation? So I guess expert testimony and kind of thing. So um, here's, so the claim estimation process happens in the bankruptcy court, if I, if I understand the question, the bankruptcy, there, there's no specific, it, it, the rules for claims estimation are, are a little vague in, in the sense of, it doesn't say we're gonna have this type of hearing, this type of proceeding. So the judge has to decide. And judges will usually say, we're gonna have a more robust proceeding if we're estimating large claims that are very central to the process. Uh, at that point, they'll want expert testimony. And at that point, we get to hearings or filings and those will bring in the rules of evidence. And so you'll have your, are you a qualified expert? Uh, and I imagine there'll be two types of experts that we, well, maybe at least two types of experts that a court would wanna hear from. One, the experts on the, the, the kind of claims, that the substantive claims themselves, like what's the evidence of, of damage? What's the evidence of causation? Uh, and damage, I mean like that there was damage. And then you'll have, experts on valuation, what's the value of those claims? 
And if there's a dispute over the funding agreement, you'll have a, a experts on the value of the assets, right? So you'll have financial experts come in and say, this is the value of the assets that were in old JJCI, which happens in, I don't want to say all, but, but most contentious bankruptcies or complicated bankruptcies have valuation issues and you bring in experts and you, you face all the issues you do with experts in and out in any litigation. Well, um, I'll take the moderator's prerogative here with the, the uh, last question. And thank you to everyone who submitted questions. Uh, going back to our discussion of Congress legislating in this area um, is basically my question is, is bankruptcy reform or this kind of new legislation, is that, I mean, you could say the answer colloquially, the answer or um, or is there is there a reform to be had for our tort system? So, you know, I first off, I think there are things in the bankruptcy code that can be reformed and there are issues on the table, certainly worth discussion. Right. So three big issues in proposed legislation are third party releases, Texas two step and venue. Um, Venue is complicated and there are non-legislative responses that have been going on in courts. And you know, there are full venue skeptics who say you know, the system is corrupt. There are kind of those in the middle who say, it's not that it's broken, broken, but the fact that you can choose one judge in certain courts, that's problematic. So there are questions that we wanna think about in bankruptcy reform, and that's all on the table right now. Um, if we're asking specifically here, I, I think I'll go back to, I don't, I don't, the Texas, this structure is not the problem. In some senses, it's a valuable tool. So certainly result, resolution that makes that prohibited, I would think is problematic. The, the current proposals is even more problematic because it goes too broad. All right, now, how? Do, what about tort resolution? I would love if we had you know, a provision that said, you know, this is exactly how we're gonna resolve all mass tort liability. Now, if I was sitting down in a room of policymakers, I might say, well, we should consider that we want to funnel all of these to bankruptcy courts. We should consider that. We should compare the MDL system in certain types of cases. We should compare the class action system, which is hard when you have different damages like these cases. And we should compare the bankruptcy system. I think 524G came into existence because of problems with the non-bankruptcy system in with asbestos cases. So that's how that kind of comes about. So I would think reform, if, if we're worried about mass tort, which is, I'm not gonna say broken because this, the system is, it's a complicated problem that the system has to deal with. But if we want to make it better, we should, think about systemic reform, and that should include bankruptcy courts. I guess that's that's where I end up. And these cases are an example of how that might that might work in a positive way. That makes good sense. Well, uh, we've come to the end of our time. Professor, thank you very much for your time participating in, in this discussion. I really enjoyed it, and I hope you did as well. Yeah, thank um, you very much for having me. 
Yeah, thank you. And uh, on behalf of the Federalist Society, I want to thank our audience for calling in. Your great questions. Uh, these were really great. I host a lot of these and not all of them have as many or as good uh, of questions. So thank you very much. And be sure to keep an eye on uh, your emails and on our website for announcements about upcoming events, uh, just like this one. But until the next one, uh, we are adjourned. Thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.